0: Speaking of Mark Smith, I um, it's like uh, remember it was like in November one time I was driving to work at my last church in Texas, and, and he's like, oh, Andrew, it's a glorious day. We've got a foot of snow last night or something, like it's the sun's shining. My sunroof is back. And I'm like, that's so crazy. What a different world I might be going to in Steamboat and uh, in so many ways. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and um, and I uh, and as I studied Steamboat, I got to know a little bit more about you know the culture here and what I was coming up against. Sorry, my sermon went away. You don't want that. There you go. And um, and I uh, had this. Um, I had the. I had the wherewithal, I guess, the, the the mental ability to understand that I was moving to the west from the south. And as a, as a pastor in the South, you have like this, the title pastor entitles you to some things. Um, let me indulge you for a second. So for, you know, when I'm a when you say in the South, when you introduce yourself and somebody says, what do you do? You say, I'm a pastor, immediately their language cleans up. Like no more cuss words, or they apologize for them before they say them. I'm like, I'm not Jesus, that's fine, you know, and... Um, so that immediately the language cleans up, or they say, well, I went to church once, you know, or they talk about their religious record, you know, immediately there's kind of this, there's, there's this, Something comes with the title, right? Sometimes I got free food. Uh, Chick-fil-A. I mean, I mean, it's Pastor Haven. I got a large strawberry shake every time I went in. Um, you know, says, you know, the title pastor comes with something. And I, I had a friend, and he planted a church in the northwest. He and I went to college together, and uh, and I called him. He, um, there, he's up in Oregon, and a great guy. And I called him, I said, what is it like to pastor in the West? And the first thing he said was, Andrew, you're going to have to let go of all of your little pastor privileges from the South. Like they all go away. People don't care. In fact, they might cuss more. Just to throw you off. I mean, it's, it's completely different from the way it is in the South. It, that title, you just need to get rid of it. And I was like, okay, you, know, you can have the title because it is you, but you don't need to worry about it because it's going to be, it's just not the way it is in the South. And he, he gave me a lot of other coaching, a lot of other things. But I thought it's, it's very interesting that the title, you know, pastor, and, and the weight it carries in one place and how it carries almost no weight in another place here in Steamboat and in the West Um, the titles we give people, they they tend to do that, right? I mean, when we give somebody a title, like a doctor, we immediately assume, you can help me, unless you're a doctor in, you know, philosophy, you can't help me. But, you know, I mean, we give me, you know, (laughs) so it's like, you know, we assume a doctor can help, or a doctor can fix things, and, you know, you seem like a a teacher, somebody who cares about kids, you you know, most of them do. And so, you know, you assume these things about people based on their titles, right? And one of the things we see, in, uh, and even in the life of Christ, and even with Jesus today, is that people give Jesus like these titles, like and and they kind of and I think the titles we give Jesus sometimes like reduce him um, to something more manageable. Like when we call Jesus, many uh, non-Christians, especially, will call Jesus uh, a good man, right? Uh, or they'll say he was a great prophet, or he was very wise. They'll put him on the on the level of Buddha. stuff like that you know he's he's smart he was good we should follow the golden rule you know and they'll and they'll kind of give him these these new titles not king not god not son of god prophet wise good guy revolutionary that's about it and we we and when we do that we reduce jesus to this kind of this manageable person and what is so amazing is this isn't new Like this was happening in the Bible, and it's happening in the New Testament. And so today we're going to look, we're continuing our series on the mountains, and Jesus uses a mountain to explain to a handful of disciples who he really is, because there's a little bit of confusion on who he really is really is and so we're going to look at a very 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 famous uh, scene called the transfiguration never in my life have I preached on the transfiguration it's a very intimidating part of the life of Christ because it's so spiritual and so you know extraordinary and I hope I don't blow that today but I've learned so much and I've really enjoyed preparing for it but before we so before we can get to the mountain though and we'll get to the mountain just stay with me one of the things I learned about the transfiguration is you cannot understand the transfiguration. Do you know what the transfiguration is? Oh, let me just tell you real quick so you're not confused. The transfiguration is this moment when Jesus is on this mountain and he, he becomes glowing. He becomes deific. right? He, he's a deity. and he's become, looks like he momentary, He momentarily loses his earthly form and takes on the form of God. All right, this is the transfiguration. Transfiguration, it comes from the Greek word metamorphosis, right? I mean it's this, it's this momentary change that happens in his life, in his being, and it's a it's a validation for all those who are witnessing. Before we get there though, every single gospel, Mark, Luke, and Matthew all talk about the transfiguration. John leaves it out. Mark, Luke, and Matthew all do something. They, um, they kind of they're like The uh, Mark wrote a quick gospel. He was he was probably the secretary for Peter. It's really Peter's gospel, and Mark's gospel is written for uh, the really it's it's written for like almost the the um, the Gentile mind, right? Because it's so quick. Uh, and, and John's gospel is much the same way. It's for the Gentiles. In fact, John says, for those who are seekers. It says in, John, in the gospel of John, I've written this for those who are seeking him. So it's, it's not written for necessarily for the Jewish audience. It's written for Gentiles. And so they craft their gospels in such a way that it reaches that mindset. you got to know that when you're reading the gospels because sometimes things appear out of order and they don't, they don't seem to line up, and you're like, well, why did he mention that and he didn't mention that? And because they're writing to a different audience, even at a different time. And then Luke's gospel is extremely detailed. It's the most detailed gospel we have. In fact, we'll be in Luke 9 today. And it is written for the cynic. It is written for the person who's questioning the authority and the, uh, and the reality of who Christ is. And then Matthew's gospel is written for the Jew. It's written for the Jewish person to understand. So much Jewish uh, parallelism is revealed through Matthew's gospel. In fact, Matthew's gospel does, goes through great lengths to reveal Jesus as king. Right, so you have uh, these three, these four gospels, excuse me, that are all kind of written with a different slant. They are, they are all, um, with the exception of John, very orderly when it comes to the cross. Like the events leading up to the cross, they all pretty much just stay within. They stay within the code. That's like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. John throws the turning over the tables pretty early, but that's for a reason. The only other event in Scripture, trust me, I'm going through with this. The only other event in Scripture that does this, right? That where people are like chronologically, these things happened before this happened: the cross and the transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all said these three things happened before the transfiguration. They didn't mess with the order because you have to know. You're not going to understand the transfiguration unless you know these things took place before the transfiguration happened. So for us, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16 for the events leading up to the transfiguration. And then we're going to hop over to Luke 9 for the transfiguration itself. All right? No worries. Easy peasy. We'll be out of here in no time. Trust me. All right. Matthew 16 verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" And they said, "Some say John the Baptist; others say Elijah; and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." So Jesus is in this region called Caesarea Philippi, which I will be in in like a month. I'm pretty excited to be there. I love that place, and uh, and those of you who are going with me will be there with me. And uh, these and Caesarea Philippi is past kind of like. You've left, you left Jerusalem like the center of Judaism. You've come out to the, um, the Sea of Galilee, which is like the farmers, it's kind of like it's the south of Judaism, okay? It's, it's uh, rural, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to pick on, I'm from the south, so I'm not trying to pick on the south. But you know, there's, it's just kind of a different way of living. You get the urban, and you kind of come out to the country. Past that line is what you call the pagans, total pagans. And so Jesus leaves that region into what is pagan territory, which is Caesarea Philippi. And they're not Jewish. They're not Gentile. They're crazy. They're still sacrificing people, right? I mean, they are nuts. In fact, there's a passage that we're not going to pay a lot of attention to, but the gates of hell are in Caesarea Philippi, where they throw people into it to sacrifice. I mean, it's... Crazy. And so Jesus is there when he asks this question. He's in this very pagan land when he asks this question about these about who do people say that I am? And so he says, okay, who do people say that I am? And, and it, I just love the narratives cuz it's like you can almost picture like the disciples and you know like somebody's going to say, "Well, obviously, you know, Jesus, somebody thought you were Herod. And, you know, Herod thought you were, excuse me, Herod thought you were John the Baptist reincarnated." So some people say you're John the Baptist, and then some people and then another guys going to pop up and say, "Yeah, I heard somebody else." It's almost like a Monty Python thing. <laughs> I heard somebody else once say, you know, a swallow can fly with a coconut. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Watch it for free. Um, so I, you know, I heard somebody once say you're like Elijah because you know, you're prophetic and you say prophetic things, and so you're like Elijah. And, so, and another one you know, says, well, you're Jeremiah. He was also a prophet, and, you know, but Elijah didn't die, so you're kind of like him because we don't really know what happened to Elijah, so maybe he came back and that's you. And, but then you're really prophetic like Jeremiah, and you kind of quote him all the time, and so maybe you're him. And so they're kind of bouncing back and forth with these things, and Jesus is like, cool, 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 cool. I know. Verse 15. He said to them, "But who do you say that I am? You walk with me, you eat, sleep, and drink with me. You know me better than what they say." So, disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's almost like that. Um, it's almost like that moment. Like they're all like, "Is this a trick question? Like he could totally blast us right now if we get this wrong." You know, it's like like, "Oh, do we answer this?" And so who do you think's going to open his big mouth first, right? Peter, right? Simon Peter replied, "You are the Christ, the Son of the living God." And at that moment all the disciples looked at him like, "I think he got it right." You know, it's like, "What?" And Jesus answered him, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, "'for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, "'but my Father who is in heaven, "'and I tell you, you are Peter,' which means rock, "'and on this rock I will build my church.'" Consequently, he was the first rock, Dwayne Johnson and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one about this. So Jesus affirms that Peter, yes, that's, you're right, you got this right, on your statement, Peter, the, the, you, Peter, are not the rock. The statement that you made is the rock. Right, that I am the Christ, the Messiah. That's the, that's the rock. But you made it so you get the name. And I knew you were going to make it, so I named you that before. So you're the, the, on that statement, we're going to build the church. And remember I told you the gates of hell are actually in Caesarea Philippi. They were called the gates of hell where you sacrificed children and slaves to the God of Pan, Peter Pan, to Pan. And you would, that's where they got it from. And so you would, that's what you do. And they called it the gates of hell because their loved ones would go in there and die. And Jesus would point, he could point right to it and say, those gates of hell will not stop me. By the way, I just I, got, I love this passage. This is just, just in my notes. This is extra. Hell has gates. That's defensive. That means we are offense. We push. We push back the darkness. We're not afraid of the darkness. We're not scared of hell. Hell's not pushing back on us. We're pushing back on hell, right? So Jesus says, those gates aren't going to slow us down. We are pushing right through this pagan territory, and then we're going to push through on the rock, and the rock is what? Christ has come. He is the Messiah, and he's dwelling before them, right? So be, uh, one time I was in a meeting, and somebody said, Andrew, why are, why are we telling Christians to go Halloween trick-or-treating? Isn't that the hell's day? This is in the South. This sound like the South. It wasn't here, right? And I said, since when are we on defense? Go trick-or-treating. Amen. Amen. We're not on defense. We're on offense. Get out there. Get some candy and share Jesus, right? Do that. I mean, it's, all, it's good. We're not on defense here. So, all right. Sorry. You ever seen that? Uh, you ever seen Seinfeld when, when George like, makes like a great joke and he's like, I'm out? That's what Peter should have done, right? Like, I think I've peaked and I'm just not going to say anything for the next couple of years, right? But he doesn't do that. Next thing, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus starts explaining to them, okay, guys, listen, here's the plan. Isaiah says one suffering servant's gonna come and by his stripes you will be healed. I am that suffering servant. He will hang on a tree for the sins of many and cover your sins as white as snow. I am that person who will hang on that tree. I will be persecuted I will be smitten by my own people. Um, That is me. So I have to go to Jerusalem and be smitten, stricken, and hung for the sins of humanity. This is going to happen. But fear not. As Peter just said, I am the Messiah. I'm coming back. That's what he says. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's explaining this to them. There's going to be a resurrection. Don't fear this. It's going to be okay. It must happen. This is the end game. But Peter, verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? And began to rebuke him. In the Greek, that's rebuke him, right? He's rebuking Jesus. <laughs> like, no, Jesus. This, this is like my six-year-old telling me, Daddy, I'm not gonna do that. Oh, really? I will pick you up. Actually, any of my children telling me, no, I won't do that. Oh, really? I will pick you up and make you do that. Now we, you know, don't call CPS on me, but I mean, I can make you do it. It's just like you're rebuking Jesus. Like he is God. You just called him God, right? says, so, for you, for be it, uh, excuse me, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's like, this isn't going to happen. There's no way I'm letting you get hurt. There's no way I'm letting you die. And Jesus is like, I just told you this is the plan, right? Verse. you should have kept your mouth shut, buddy. 22, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, oh, my Goodness, isn't, this, isn't this such a Christian life, right? I mean, aren't we all capable of this? Like, one moment we're like totally right with God and everything's perfect, and the next moment where Jesus is saying, Get behind me, Satan. Like, oh, it's so, Peter's so good for us. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are on the things of man. So, Peter rebukes Jesus, then Jesus rebukes Peter, because Peter. Although he knows Jesus is the Messiah, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Because actions follow belief. Finally, Jesus says this, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, all right, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to bear a cross, you're going to bear a cross. I believe it's in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, or Mark, Jesus not only pulls his disciples together, the 12, he gets everybody together. Any of you guys following me, you're all going to bear a cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels and the glory... In the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So this is the return of Christ. Truly, I say to you, however, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So he tells the disciples, "I'm going to the cross. You're going to have to carry a cross. Following me is going to cost you your life. You're going to have to lay everything down to follow me. I'm not your homeboy. I'm not your dude." I'm not your celebrity, I'm not your prophet, I'm your God, and you lay everything down for God. I'm going to the cross, and you will too, just wait and see. Some have, the the last verse there, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That has bewildered scholars. People are like, how does that work? Jesus hasn't returned, and the disciples are all gone, or the apostles are all dead. So how, did, how does that work? I'll tell you how it works, because Matthew, Luke, and John all say that exact verse right before the transfiguration. Some of you are going to get to see me in my glorified state. He's talking about the transfiguration. He's not talking about his return. So in summary of the context of Matthew, Mark, and Luke... The first question is, who is Jesus? Some people say this, some people say this, some people say this. Do they really believe what they say? Do you really believe that I am what Peter just said, the Messiah, right? And are your actions going to prove it? Are you going to be willing to lay down your life? If you just think I'm a prophet, you're not. If you just think I'm a good guy, you're not. Are you willing to lay down everything to follow me? And for that, then, we turn to the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, okay? So if you have a bible turn to it if you have a digital device click whatever you need to click All right verse 28 now about 8 days after these sayings he took with him peter and john and james and went up on the mountain to pray and he was praying as excuse me and as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered metamorphosed and his clothing became dazzling white Like I think one one of the gospel writers says, whiter than bleach can bleach. Like it is so white, it's it's bright. It's like gotta wear sunglasses white, but they don't have sunglasses, so they can't say. You know, it's like super super white. So, who gets to go? Remember the disciples series. Peter and his brother Andrew are the first two disciples who are called. John and his brother James are in the same region, and they're the next two brothers called. Jesus brings Peter. But he doesn't bring Andrew. He brings John and he brings James. James, John and James, Jesus gives them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, because they're fiery. They are feisty. I don't think they had redheads in the Middle East, but they were redheads, right? I mean, they're just fiery kind of guys. They want to nuke, you know, the Samaritans. I mean, they are just, they're like, they're out to get you, right? So. And then there's Peter, you mean know, we all know Peter, he's struggling, right? He's like, yeah, you're the one. Like, oh, I don't know if you're the one. Maybe you shouldn't go. Maybe we should go. You know, he's a mess, right? He's George Costanza right now. He's, just, he's, a, he's a mess. And so Jesus is like, Peter, come with me. Uh, Andrew, you're good. Andrew's always good, by the way. <laughs> Andrew is one of those disciples, and that's not me. Uh, trust me, it's not, I'm more Peter than anybody. Andrew's one of those disciples in the Bible, he's, oh, he always has the faith. And the, when the feeding of the 5,000 happens, he's, they, um, remember, everybody's like, how are we going to feed these people? And Peter's like, or Andrew shows up, he's like, I got some kids' lunch, <laughs> right? And Jesus is like, how'd you do that? You know? No, but he's like, I got some kids' lunch, maybe we could do something with this. And Jesus is like, perfect, right? I mean, Andrew just always seems to have just this great faith. He has this great faith. And so Jesus is kind of like, you don't need to see this, Andrew. James and John, you guys need to see this. John, you're going to take care of my mama on the cross. One of the last things he's going to say, John, your mother, Mary. Mother, your son, John. John's going to take care of you from now on. So John, you need to see this, right? In fact, you're going to get boiled alive and sent to an island on Patmos to die. But first, you're going to take care of my mother. So John, you need to see this. James, you just need to come along. I read about James again. I was like, I can't figure out the nut. I can't figure out why James was so unique. He's a great pastor, great man, godly man. He was fiery, but for some reason, John felt, or, excuse me, Jesus felt like the brother of John, James, needed to be there. It's, a, it's And it should be. As we read the context, we don't know where they went. In fact, we're going to see Peter. Peter's going to want to commemorate this moment. And Jesus is going to be like, come on, man. You Don't you get it? That's not what we're about, you know? And so I think it's fitting that we don't really know which mountain this is. There are, um, it says in the Gospel of Mark that it was a very high mountain. It also says in Luke, very high mountain. Or not, it leaves it out in Luke, but Mark and Matthew say a high mountain. So uh, so the first thing I did was research all the highest peaks in, um, in Israel. You know what the highest peak is? <laughs> it's a whopping 3,600 feet. <laughs> It's so funny. Okay, so um, there's nothing, and so that's their highest peaks. They have a ski resort there. I was like, did they go ski? You know, all the snowboarders would like that. They knew Jesus was a snowboarder. So, I mean, did they go there? I mean, where did they? Where did they go? Right? And so, um, as you look at the different places, so most of the high peaks are very far from Caesarea Philippi. It's not near where they are. Like barely, really far. And there's no indication that they've left this region. So, I'm going to show you a picture. Um, Isn't that nice? That is the highest peak in the region. I was there in 2014, my first trip to Israel. And uh, right below me is, well, let me tell you, to the left of me is the road to Damascus, the very famous road that Paul took um, to go persecute Christians, part of the road to Damascus. It's the only road in and out from Syria and Lebanon into Jerusalem. It is a strategic military placement this mountain even today and it was in the, in the past right if you look past the purple in the mountain straight down is Caesarea Philippi right below me and here's something else I learned in Israel when you go to Israel there are some sites that are disputed one of the most disputed sites is where was Jesus buried and where was he hung on a cross There are two reasonable locations. Um, One more reasonable, the one that is most reasonable, and I'll show it to you when we get to that on on Easter Sunday, um, has, um, you know, you know, Israel is like a, it's a, it's like, it's Islam and Judaism and Christianity. There's a lot of religion that happens there. You ever heard of a minaret? Minarets of tall tower where they no, 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 the Muslims do the call to prayer. Okay. So they have those sporadically and they call it out to prayer three times a day. Um, and and it's, it's just amazing. It's really eerie. You know how many minarets are surrounding the one of the supposed places of Jesus' burial and Golgotha? Three. Surrounding it. You know what they put on top of what is the supposed place of Golgotha? Allah is the one true God. There is no other. It's it's a stone. You know, what's at the bottom of Golgotha, at Muslim bus depot. It is loud. It's smoky. It's obnoxious. It's and so you're at and actually it's right next to the burial place of Christ, the Joseph's Garden. And it's, you're there trying to have like communion or a peaceful moment. And it's, arr, arr, you know, and all these noises and smells. And it's, man, it's so intense. I remember my first time the, the guide said this, he's like, at first this offended me. But then it reminded me that even on the cross, the day Jesus was crucified, he was surrounded by his enemies. And I learned something. The other site doesn't have any of that stuff. And I said, you want to know where the real sites are? Look for the warfare. They know. They know. The people who live there know where the real sites are. You know what's at the top right behind me? It's called Nimrod's Fortress. It's one of the great edifices of the Muslim Empire. It is incredible. It's amazing. It's a castle. It's, I was looking for like Rapunzel everywhere. You know. I mean, it's, just, it's an amazing, beautiful castle, and everybody should visit it. And I thought, hmm, what a great way to cover up. What should be celebrated here, and that is the transfiguration. It is so obvious. The highest mountain, strategic mountain, right over Caesarea Philippi. To me, that's the spot. He transfigured. His appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Um, what, needs to, what you need to see here is that Jesus transfigured from within. Nothing transfigured him it didn't fade like it Moses transfigured. It didn't fade on Jesus. Um, it was a within transfiguring, and it reveals that he is the Son of God. Um, religions, uh, there's all kinds. I, was, I took it all out because it bogged us down, but there's a religion after religion after religion that looked to this uh, event happening in a follower's life or a, a prophet's life, validating them as a deity, and here we have it happening to Jesus. In fact, the, even there's some uh, outside... It's called extra-biblical material from the Jews that, would, that were looking for this kind of event to happen uh, to their Messiah. And here it is happening. So there's all these amazing things. I love what 2 Peter writes. So Peter was there, and later on, you know, he's writing letters to the church that were circulated because he became such a, a spiritual giant for the church after the book of Acts. Second Peter says this, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, speaking of the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, from we were, um, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So later, I mean, this is such a huge impact for Peter. And he's writing about it much later in his, one of his last letters in Second Peter. And he's saying this was the majesty of God coming into Christ. He was, he's a, you know, the Bible talks about Jesus being somebody who you didn't want to look at. Like he wasn't appealing. He wasn't hot. He wasn't a stud. He wasn't sexy. He wasn't, he wasn't all those things. He's not going to make the cover of GQ or Time or any of that stuff, right? He's just a guy. He's just a guy with a beard, ruddy, dirty, homeless man. But his works and his actions and his words drew you to him because you knew he was God. But in this moment, all of that's gone and the glory of God has filled up Jesus. And it is majestic and life-altering for these three men who are witnessing it. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So remember when I told you about Jesus was telling his disciples, here's the plan, here's the end game, this is where we're headed. Now he's speaking to Moses and Elijah about this. So they, they show up. So why are Moses and Elijah there? Best Shot, here we go. Moses is there as a fulfillment of the law to show that Jesus is a fulfillment of the law because Moses gave us the Ten Commandments and all the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Uh, Jeremiah is, excuse me, Elijah is there because again, he never died. And there was some confusion about whether or not Jesus was Elijah or not. So just to make it very, very clear, here he is, he's not Elijah because Elijah's here and here's Jesus. And Elijah is a fulfillment of the prophets. So Jesus then comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. Both men received mountaintop revelations of God, and now Jesus is receiving it with them. Both were known for their powerful miracles. Now Jesus is seen it with them. Uh, both men's lives ended unusually. Uh, Moses dies on a mountain overlooking the promised land and gets buried by God. Elijah is caught up in a chariot of fire, and so we never really see him die. And then we see Jesus die for the sins of humanity. So you see all these unique traits about them. But Jesus, but Jesus wants to make it so clear to these guys, I am not Moses, and I'm not Elijah. I'm Jesus. You were wondering, Peter. You were wondering, I am the Son of God. Interesting here in verse 31, it says, and they spoke of his departure. That's the Greek word exodus. And the, and the Greek reader would, would read that and would understand, oh, Jesus is the final exodus. Remember, the exodus was to take a group of people from slavery to a promised land. We too were enslaved to our sins, but through Christ we are offered eternal salvation in a promised place, right? The new heavens and the new earth. So they're speaking of that moment. Verse 32, now Peter and James and John and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, and I bet they did, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And the men Um, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said, Oh, my goodness, Peter. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke says, not knowing what he said. Peter, just stop. That's not the end game. We're not trying to commemorate something. We're not trying to make more statues. We're not trying to get back to a tabernacle period. We are headed to Jerusalem where I'm going to die for the sins of the world. That's the end game here, not this. This is like, come on, Peter, you keep forgetting. You keep messing this up. He forgot the plan. Verse 34, And he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the clouds saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I was watching a um, debate recently with uh, Christopher Hitchens, because that's what I do for fun. Um, somebody said, do you just read creationists? It's like, oh, no, I love atheists. They're my favorite. Um, and Christopher Hitchens and um, uh, John Lennox, who's a mathematician, and, uh, or was it Ravi Zacharias? I don't know. It was one of them. Some apologists. And Christopher Hitchens said, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never said he was. That's all he says. It's kind of true. Jesus says... Uh, who are you? I am, using the name of God. People said, do you think you have the authority of God to heal sins? He says, which is easier, for a man to say, get up and walk, your sins have been healed, or to take your mat? And, you know. he said, so he says, yeah, I have the authority of God. He claims the title of God, but he never quite explicitly says, I am God. Um, when asked about, is, are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say. He's right? like, you said it. Right? He never explicitly comes out and says it. And I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was Rabbi who said um, that, he says, that is not proof that Jesus is not God. If anything, it's proof that he is God. Because only a charlatan would claim to be God. The charlatan has to say, I'm God, follow me. The real one says, I'm going to die and come back to life. Who's God, right? Kind of reminds me of those NFL players, you know? Jerry Rice didn't need to celebrate. He was Jerry Rice. He's the best wide receiver ever. Michael Irvin, is he still in jail? Right? It's like, okay. You know, I mean, it's like the guys are like, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. You know, you're not. Probably not. The greatest are the guys who let their performance show it. Right? Jesus like, I don't need to tell you I'm God because no man can raise himself from the dead unless he is. And even in this moment, when Jesus could have said, Peter, I told you I'm God, he doesn't stoop that low. What's he do? Dad, tell him who I am. (laughs) You see that? It's so cool. This is my son, uh, the son of God? Correct. My chosen one, listen to him. And I just see God saying, Peter. It's a rebuke to Peter. Peter, you're not listening. Listen to him. In fact, uh, when God does this, um, he does this twice in the life of Christ. First at his baptism, because every dad goes to a baptism. Joseph has baptism, and God speaks to him. I'm pleased with you. You are my beloved. Right Here, when God shows up and speaks, he speaks to the disciples. He speaks out. This is my son. Listen to him. He is me. So here we see Jesus being claimed as God, not by Jesus, by God. So, in closing, who is Jesus to you? He's not a prophet like Elijah. Prophets are great. I, uh, prophets are entertaining. Prophets are fascinating. Prophets say great things, and they're neat to listen to, and I, I like listening to them too. I'm not much a prophetic preacher, but they're just fascinating. And not, I'm not talking about like see the future. I'm talking about guys who are like boldly say things. I'm like, wow, that's so amazing that you said that so boldly. And I, I love listening to prophetic preachers like that who are so bold and strong. But sometimes I get, you know, there's a guy when I was in college named Vody Bauckham. So bold. He would come to our college campus, Stephen F. Austin, SFA, uh, short for School for Alcoholics. And, <laughs> and he, would, he would come and stand in the commons and preach the gospel. Big. He was a tight end from Rice. He's like 6'5", black dude. He's just a big, booming voice. And he would just come stand in the middle of the commons and preach the gospel. Prophetic. And I would just go and just like, <laughs> he was like, drool. I'm like, you're so amazing and I'm podcasting him, and I'm following him. I'm all over Bakum. I'm kind of over Vodibakum. He's uh, it's all right. He's in Africa now. I still listen to him every once in a while. i got some of his books. He's all right. I'm not, he's like, yeah, I've moved past him. Right? He's kind of saying the same thing over and over again. The prophets do. It's okay. I'm not giving my life to Vodibakum. Oh, wise men, Moses... Moses was so wise. The law, the commandments—amazing. We package Jesus into like this: Moses, Buddha, Obama figure. And he's so wise and so soothing and so just cool, right? He's got a cool T-shirt on and snowboards, right? Okay, but then you turn forty and have kids, and cool's not so cool anymore right? You heard the Taylor Swift song, we're never going to go out of style. Oh, I was like, oh baby, you have no idea. You'll be out of style in 10 days. You know I mean? it's like, Anyway, you're going to get old. It's not going to be so cool anymore. You're going to get past it. Trends come and go, right? Even wisdom. I've never, listen, in this town, I've studied Buddhism. And my problem is I've studied fundamental Buddhism. And I know fundamental Buddhism, but I can't find any fundamental Buddhists in this town. You know why? Because they take the law, they take what Buddha said here, they take it there. They don't like it here, they don't like it there. They just kind of, you know, just kind of take the rules are meant to be bent and broken. You put Jesus in that category, that's what you're going to do. He's not just a great lawgiver. He's not just a great preacher or prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Son of God. He's the one you've been waiting for. Um. Alyssa, my youngest, my six-year-old, she loves gifts. Oh my goodness, she's gonna kill me. And, uh, and she's normally every time she's asking for something for her birthday. Her birthday's in January. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, sure, you can have that. And we got a list, right? So she loves gifts. But the other night she shocked me. I was putting her to bed, and we do a little Jesus time before we go to bed. And she really shocked me. She's climbing in bed. She's like, Daddy, I love Jesus so much. I want to give Jesus a gift. And I thought, oh. She's like, would he like a stuffy? You know, would he like this? You know, she's trying to think through all the things that you know Jesus might like. And I said, oh, baby, Jesus, Jesus doesn't need any of those things. It's like there's only one thing Jesus wants. And that's your heart. Just give him your whole life, sweetie pie. That's all he wants from you. Because he's God. He doesn't need anything. That's what you do with the king. Not a prophet, not a lawgiver, not a wise, super cool dude. He's the king. He needs nothing from you except your whole heart. Take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray.